It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today, the writer Jasmine Darznick talking about her new memoir. It's the story of three generations of Iranian and Iranian-American women. Jasmine was born in Iran and moved to the United States with her parents when she was just three years old. She grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, knowing almost nothing of her Iranian family history. Then, when her father died in 2001, she started asking questions of her mother about their past. And her mother, who'd been pretty tight-lipped until then, finally opened up. She told her story in a series of cassette tapes that she dictated for Jasmine. It turned out to be quite a saga, a fascinating look at one woman's life, and really a window onto the lives of many women in Iran over the last half century. Jasmine Darznick's new book is called The Good Daughter, a memoir of my mother's hidden life. You left Iran at what age? I was three. But you still have some memories. I do. They're pretty faint, but I can remember, for example, my grandmother's hair salon on Avenue Gisha, it was called. I can remember her home and our last apartment in Tehran, um, but it's mostly those intimate spaces that I remember, and only faintly. You remember your grandmother doing a dance. I do. I remember she used to paint her belly with makeup. She used to paint the features of a woman's face on her bare belly and do a dance for me. And I had no idea as a child, of course, but have learned more recently that this was an ancient way that women used to occupy themselves in the women's corridors by dancing for each other like this. (laughs) Well, you write about that moment. Um, I didn't know this yet, but it was a dance that Iranian women had performed for each other in the Andarun, is that how it's pronounced? Andarun. Andarun, or women's quarters for hundreds of years, a vestige of the all-but-vanished country to which my grandmother had been born. Tell me just um, in brief what that country was like uh, for women. This was in, what, the 1940s, 1930s? Well, this is a world that's lost to even Iranians now. Iran was modernized in the 60s and 70s. Iran of the 40s was still caught between tradition and modernity. The life of women, particularly women of my family's social class, lower middle class families, was quite sequestered. Um, A holiday might be going to visit a martyr's shrine, for example. But most of their days were spent at home. They had really lovely rituals of celebration and making food, dancing for each other, for example. It was a culture also of storytelling. Well, you're making it sound pretty nice, actually. (laughs) There were absolutely darker aspects to women's lives. Um, Women had very few legal rights. Um, A woman was not allowed to divorce, for instance. The age of marriage had been raised under Reza Shah from age of 9 to 13. So my mother um, would really be of the last generation to marry quite young. She married at 13. Um, My grandmother had been married at 14, actually. And women at that time had no right to divorce, no right to retain custody of their children. There was a kind of how shall I say, an attitude toward domestic abuse, let's say, that 
you should burn in, inwardly and accommodate was the phrase, besos o besos. Um, if a woman's husband beat her, many looked away, and there was no recourse under the law whatsoever. In fact, beating was something that happened to both your mother and your, your grandmother, and they were supposed to just sit and take it, yeah? I think it's very interesting to me the ways in which the other women were complicit in that silence. Um, that looking away was often uh, a looking away by women, uh, a looking away from each other's sufferings. And there was very little they could do for one another, and silence was thought a kind of mercy. Mm. The men of that period in your family story don't come off too well. Uh, your grandfather, Sohrab, Sohrab and uh, your mother's first husband, Yes, both beat their child brides. I'll call them children. I mean, they were in their early teens. Mm -hmm. Both pretty much after a brief period of romance, you know, neglected them. Your grandfather lost interest in your, in your grandmother pretty quickly and went off being a gambler and sort of a playboy? In a sense, he deserted the family. He kept a, an eye out for them from a distance, but he had really cast his own life out with the more modern and Western contingent of the city. But he was an interesting man. As brutal as he was to my grandmother, it was he who eventually would seek out a divorce for his daughter. So I think he he in particular reflects um, an Iranian man who was of his time. He was quite cruel in his way, but he also did the very best he could by my mother when the time came. Mm. Not by your grandmother, though. Not by my grandmother. He really married her in order to have children. Um, he had been in love with a woman for many years, but that woman had been divorced. She was a divorcee, and his family would never have accepted a divorcee. Divorcees were thought of really as no better than prostitutes at the time. And so he had married my grandmother pretty much with the intention just of having children and satisfying his family's expectations. Hmm. Yeah, I got the impression, at least from the, the stories of, of these two women, your grandmother and your mother, that um, there were some brief periods when it was really good to be a woman around <laughs> the time of a wedding, about the time when you gave birth to a child. And, <laughs> and beyond that, it was so, oh, you know, I want to say suffocating and so restricted, you know, mm -hmm. not to uh, mention cruel in some cases. Mm -hmm. And if you dared oppose the husband who was beating you or or if you got divorced, as in the case of your mother, mm -hmm. we'll talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, it was quite a divorce. Then you're considered, what, extremely low status. You don't mm -hmm. have many options left in life at all. It's very sad, especially, I think, with respect to my mother, who would be told by her grandmother, for instance, that when my grandmother was beaten, it was because she had brought it on, that she had provoked my grandfather. And my mother was really raised to think that her mother had not fulfilled her duties as a wife, let's say. So it's really quite horrible how women who suffered such abuses were blamed for those very abuses. Well, reading this, I got to say, I, I became an angry feminist at times, <laughs> you know. Were you angry when you learned what your, your mother and grandmother and women like them went through? Absolutely. I grew up in the U.S. I have a legal background as well. I worked for a time, actually, in a, a domestic abuse clinic. So I had a lot of um, passionate conviction around issues such as domestic abuse. And to learn that my grandmother and my mother had suffered such histories was quite painful, quite horrifying. You learned about it through some tapes that your mother gave you after your father died. 
That's right. She made me a series eventually of 10 cassette tapes. And she had been in the custom of making cassette tapes for the women of her family back in Iran. Many of them were illiterate. It was very expensive also during the Iran-Iraq war to call from Iran to America. So they had established the custom of making cassette tapes for one another and sending them back and forth. My mother had never made a cassette tape for me, but now it seems to me a really natural place for her to tell her story. She could sit alone in her home in California and tell the story without interruption. I can't imagine she could have told me the story face to face. The only way for her to begin was to make these cassette tapes for me. Hmm. All the family history we're going to talk about, or at least much of it, was, was not known to you until you heard those tapes. That's right. Like many Iranians here in America, I grew up with a very nostalgic version of Iran's past. My mother loved to tell me about a place called Persia, she called it. And the Iran that she liked to recall once she left Iran was the Iran of the 60s and 70s, which was a rapidly modernizing country. She never spoke of the Iran of her youth, and certainly she had never told me the quite painful and troubling backstory that had brought us to America. Well, we're talking about all of the um, indignities and abuse that some of the women were subject to, but the women in your in your <laughs> family didn't just take it. Especially my mother. I think my mother, having watched her own mother be relegated to the status of a second wife and be cast out of the house, my mother wouldn't brook it. Um, she had no legal recourse, but she went to her father and through an extraordinary series of events, was able to procure that divorce. But it was a point of pride to her. I won't take it. I won't endure what you endured, she would say to her mother in later years. I won't. And, and what she was faced with was a husband, this first husband, who was not your father, by the way, was a guy whose own family referred to him as a sadist. There are no words in Persian for mental illness. Um, she would actually hear the French word, sadisme, um, in regards to his mental imbalances and uh, and would only really know the extent of them once she became his bride. Mm. After some beatings and uh, an incident in which he actually like slashed his own face, uh, she became convinced that he might someday kill her. Still in her early teens, yeah, or mid-teens? That's right. She married at 13. She had a child while she was still 13 years old. And more than the beatings that she endured, it was that particular episode when he took a knife to his own face and chest that she realized if he was capable of hurting himself in that way, neither she nor, nor her child were safe. Mm. And getting out of a marriage, as we've already said, uh, for an Iranian woman in that era, and by the way, this is 1950s, 1950s Iran. Yeah, is incredibly difficult. The, the husband could divorce the wife simply by saying he wants a divorce. That's all he had to do, right? He need only utter the words. <laughs> Whereas the woman, as I understand it from your book, could only do it through extraordinary means like getting her father to sort of sue for divorce. That's right. She had no legal right herself to seek a divorce. Only her father could seek it for her. And if she had gone to your grandfather and said to him, I'm getting beaten up, uh, would you litigate a divorce for me? He might not have said yes. I don't think he would have. It was only when he became convinced that she would take her life that he sought that divorce for her. Now, you have to remember, a divorcee was thought of as a prostitute. So he knew that by seeking that divorce, he was relegating her to the status 
of a fallen woman. So it was quite a painful decision to have made on his part, but he absolutely believed it was the only way of saving her life. Well, she did something uh, extreme. Tell that story. Through a series of happenings I could not have made up in that life is so much more uh, strange than fiction. Um, Through a series of happenings, she managed to overdose on opium. And she knew that if anyone thought she had accidentally overdosed, no one would have helped her. And so she maintained the ruse of having overdosed. And as I mentioned, it was out of fear that she would take her own life that her father eventually sought that divorce for her. She got the opium from your father's mistress. That's right. (laughs) She went to this woman who she barely knew. The blue-eyed gin, I call her. (laughs) She was blue-eyed because she had some European background? No, there are Iranians with blue Uh eyes, but a woman with blue eyes is thought uncommonly beautiful Mm. in Iranian culture. Mm. And so she was always addressed as the blue-eyed one Mm -hmm. within the family. Mm. Or more often, the blue-eyed jinn who had bewitched my grandfather. Uh, And it's on her that he lavished most of his attention while ignoring your grandmother, his his wife. That's right. And I do think that he was really enthralled to her. I think that she commanded his life. um, And it was she who really separated him from the family. He had set up a house of his own with her uptown. And when it came time for my mother to be married, she really uh, she really prevented him from having much rule at all in that first marriage hmm. of my mother's. It was the women of the family, my mother's grandmother and her aunts, who actually hastened my mother's marriage, not her father, the women of the family. Getting back to your comment that uh, while men certainly caused a lot of misery for women, uh, women were in, in some ways helping to reinforce that order of things. I think they sought to align themselves with the only people in power. Mm. They themselves had no power. And so they really regarded my grandfather as a god in the household. They trembled um, and they all uh, they all bent over backwards to accommodate his will. Mm. Yeah, it was it was painful just to read about how briefly young women got to experience being children, being special before they were sort of thrown into this this oppressive role and, mm-hmm. and cast off in a way. I mean, they became members of their husband's family and were expected to simply wait on the men and stay behind closed doors mm-hmm. and not go to school, as you say. Mm-hmm. A lot of your your um, your mother's relatives back in Iran didn't know how to read, Mm -hmm. despite the fact that, you know, they were from middle-class families in many cases. They were really from the lower Lower class. Lower middle class. I would say that the the more, um, the the higher classes were beginning to treat their daughters differently. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say equally, Mm -hmm. but very pious, lower class families such as my mother's, they did tend to sequester their daughters still. And as you mentioned, their period of girlhood was very brief. My mother had very little sense of what was happening to her. And this was extraordinarily painful. Listening to her recount the tapes, her ignorance was uncanny, uh, how little sense she had of what was happening to her. Yeah, I mean, what marriage meant, what sex was. The first husband we've talked about, what was his name? His name I've changed is Kazem in the book. Okay. His uh, pseudonym is Kazem. That's right. 
he was a 26-year-old man. He staked out the schoolyard mm-hmm. where your uh, mother was going to school, the School of Virtue. That's right. It was called <laughs> yeah. and a girl's school. Yes. And he watched her. She was beautiful. And he had his eyes on her when she was a mere 12, 13 years old. And That's right. And it's not altogether uncommon. Large age differences like that would mm. not have been thought particularly mm. strange. Um, it was not uncustomary to have a difference of 20 years or even 30 uh, between a man um, and a girl. Mm-hmm. But uh, as we said, she, you know, after he started the beatings, uh, it wasn't too long after that uh, that she took that opium. Now, when she took that opium that was provided to her by uh, your grandfather's mistress, mm-hmm. the blue-eyed gin, um, <laughs> did she really want to kill herself? Did she know what it was going to do to her? I, I got the impression that she really didn't know what it was all about. I can't fully say I've solved that mystery uh-huh. myself. I think my mother was in a state of despair, and she really didn't know what she was doing. Opium would have been familiar to her. Often people used it to, let's say, cure a toothache. So it wasn't quite the narcotic that we think of it Mm. now. Um, It was quite commonplace in households. I don't think that she intended to kill herself. And Further, I'm not quite sure of the blue-eyed chin's motivations. There are moments where I think perhaps it was a mercy that she saw this young girl, this 13-year-old, who was clearly being abused by her husband and thought, I'll give her a way out. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But she gave her enough to kill her. Surely, but it didn't kill her. It didn't. She was able to, she had blood transfusions and she survived. And it was that act of desperation that convinced her father to actually press for divorce. Uh, So it did save her. I mean, it got her out of that horrible, horrible marriage. But she had to leave her daughter behind, as was the custom. Yes. Iranian children belong to their fathers, is the old maxim. Um, Iranian women really, for generations, have had no right to maintain custody of their own children. Generations of women have known that if they sought out a divorce, which would have been very um, taboo already, Mm. that they would surely be surrendering their children as well. And my grandfather told her, I'll only seek this divorce for you if you never see your daughter again. He would say to her, you cannot even speak her name again. Mm, And her name is? Well, I too, I've changed her name too. Oh, you have? I've changed all the names, but my grandmother, Cobras, and my own. Uh-huh. So you think even with those those older relatives, some now gone, you, you wanted to protect their anonymity too? It was actually a different motivation. In the very early drafts of the book, I was calling my mother, my mother, and then I began calling her by her real name. But I couldn't, which is? Which is Heshmat. But I oh. couldn't really get into her mind so long as I was calling her my mother or even by her real name. It was only when I gave her a pseudonym, Lily, that I could inhabit her personality and imagine her story. This story, of course, is a story of of a number of people, but most of all, it is uh, your mother's story, and then it's your story. That's right. The heart of the book is my mother's story. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and so she became your heroine. Oops, that's like a weird, (laughs) unintentional pun there. But but yes, I mean, she's she's sort of a hero in this story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Had you regarded your mother, and I should say that the reason she's heroic, and we'll get into more of this, but her unwillingness to accept her lot mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and what would have been a, um, a, a very, very restricted life and, and just the number of things she had to do 
to continue to pursue her own ambitions makes her a really compelling character. Indeed. Had you thought, before you listened to these tapes and before you started writing about her, had you thought of your mom as heroic in any way? No, I thought of her as strange. (laughs) I didn't much like her growing up. I thought her incredibly archaic in her prohibitions in raising me. And I was always anxious to leave home to make an American of myself. For many years, I would strive to put as much distance between us as possible. So I didn't much like her, and I wasn't keen at all to write about her. Wow. Well, uh, let's make it a little more clear what I mean when I say heroic uh, or compelling. Mm -hmm. Some of the things she had to do, we've heard how she got out of her uh, abusive marriage. Mm -hmm. But then, uh, you know, she had gone the traditional route. Um, She would have been lucky to end up maybe the second or third wife uh, of someone and and return to this second-class status. But instead, she... She went to school. She pursued a career. Yes, and this was her father, the very man who'd beat her mother, Mm -hmm. who put her back into school, who did really the the remarkable feat of making her over and giving her an education and making a professional woman of her in a time when professional women were very few in Iran. So she became the first woman of her family to attain a high school diploma, to become eventually a midwife, a nurse. And and might have even gone to medical school. That's That was her ambition. Her father died when she was still in Germany. She was sent out of the country at age 15, I believe, and was studying and hoped to go to medical school. But her father was killed. He was run over by a car. And so she had no choice but to return to Iran. But this only sharpened her ambition. She only became more sure that she had to make something mm. of herself. Her father was killed in, in sort of a hit and run. That's right. Incident. It was it was an American diplomat, in fact, who ran over my grandfather. Eventually compensating uh your your grandfather's family to the tune of what, a thousand dollars? There was, I believe a thousand tomans. It would oh, have tomans. been a small amount of money at the time. Oh, not a thousand dollars. And it was a point of pride for the family. They would not take that money from the Americans. And in the end, it went to the blue-eyed gin. It was she who claimed it. Wow. Wow. Um, your mother, she was a fan of um, great European social novels by people like Dickens <laughs> and Balzac. And I, honestly, I, I know this it was on your mind, too. She seemed like a hero from, from Dickens. My mother's story is so incredible. Had I written it as a novel, I would have been met with a chorus of implausibles. Mm. What she was able to make of herself finally was something one of a kind, like a heroine out of a novel. Were you thinking Dickens and Balzac? <laughs> I, of course, am a great reader and I love, love those novels. Um, I do think my mother has a sense of herself as a heroine, and certainly she raised me with a sense of you have to make something of yourself. You have to make something of yourself was her rallying cry to me when I was growing up, and she had done that very thing. She'd made something of herself. She refused to settle for a guy who was going to uh, (laughs) abuse her, and she eventually found someone who truly loved her. My mother was a student in Germany, and she met my father when she was studying to be a midwife. My father had a very romanticized notion of Iran. He would not have encountered many Iranians and certainly not an Iranian girl because Iranian families who were sending their 
children abroad were only sending their sons. They were not sending their daughters. So she was quite an exotic creature to my father, who was European himself. He sounds like such a sweet guy. Um, mm-hmm. Did you use his real name? I used his middle name. Johan. Johan. But uh, he, he sounds like such a, a, you know, well, you call him guileless. <laughs> <laughs> he was, I also call, I say he was the kind of man who was shy even of children. Mm. He was very timid, very bookish. He was the only boy left in his household, quite beloved and cherished by his two sisters and his mother. And when he decided to marry my mother, it was absolutely the most horrific thing to my <laughs> to my father's family. Not only was he marrying a Middle Easterner, he was marrying a Muslim. They were all devout Catholics. They really thought he was going straight to the devil. Well, not only did he marry a Muslim, <laughs> but she insisted that he convert to Islam. Well, she knew that there was no way they, they could marry Um, It's much easier for an Iranian man to marry, or a Muslim, excuse me, a Muslim man to marry a non-Muslim. It's very difficult for a Muslim woman to marry outside of her faith. She knew that there would be many hurdles. And so even when they were in Germany, she knew, first of all, that he'd have to be uh, circumcised. So he did what to his family was, you know, a self-mutilation by, at the age of 32, undergoing that procedure. He didn't do it himself, though. He did go to the hospital. No, no. He went to the (laughs) hospital, and that was not uncommon even. That was not common even for infants Mm -hmm. at that time. In Germany. In Germany. And uh, and That's how much he loved your mother. That's how much. And she loved to tell the story. She used to tell it at dinner parties. (laughs) He loved me so much. But, of course, there were other formalities. When they went back to Iran, she would have to have a number of documents signed by her relatives attesting to the fact that he would, in fact, take care of her. Mm. And so he went through quite a lot just to marry her. So he converted to Islam. Were you raised Muslim? I have a feeling, my feeling is that Islam is part of the moral fabric of Mm. my upbringing, but the daily prayers were not a ritual my mother practiced, for example, I had a sense of Islam as a quite benevolent faith. I associate it still mostly with my grandmother, Mm. for whom it was a source of consolation. Mm. My parents themselves raised me to believe in the commonalities between their faiths, particularly because my father's family had been so stridently against his marrying my mother. Um, they they really did attempt to raise me with a more, how shall I say, open-minded view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, in, in reading uh, the story of your mother and to some extent your grandmother and, and uh, hearing about all this sort of traditional um, oppression, if that's not too strong a term, that, that women faced in Iran at the time, but at the same time, interestingly, um, some you know modernizing and progressive policies by um, Reza Shah, the ruler of Iran in the early part of the 20th century, and then by his son, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the the Shah, finally overthrown during the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Both of them, father and son, tried to modernize Iran, and they tried to apparently push some reforms for women. They did. The Reza Shah, the first Shah of Iran, had been met with a lot of resistance, in particular to his policies on women's lives. 
when he outlawed the veil, let's say, in 1936, the more pious families, which really would have been the majority of Iranians at that time, thought that he was bent on making women into prostitutes. Mm -hmm. For the women of my family, going out into the streets without a veil would have felt more uncomfortable than going out naked even. So there was quite a lot of resistance. Those laws would be eased in subsequent years. But there was a time when women were beaten in the streets if they wore a veil. Very few Americans seem to know of this period of history. But when Reza Shah put into place these laws, there would be a lot of fighting back on the part of the more pious and traditional Iranian families. And then uh, his son, the second Shah, you know, pushed further reforms, including the right to vote. And and uh, also, I think Reza Shah, didn't he raise the marriage age so that women weren't quite so young when they were married off? Reza Shah raised it from 9 to 13. And Mohammad Reza Pahlavi initiated what's known as the White Revolution, by which, for the first time, Iranian women had the right to divorce their husbands to retain custody of their children. Mm-hmm. And, of course... In later years, these laws would be repealed. These would be the very first of the laws to be repealed. (laughs) After the revolution. After the revolution. Where women had to start wearing the shador again and things like that. But uh, Iranian women, it seems to me, um, have been caught in this this weird sort of um, set of dual pressures. On the one hand, literally outlawing the veil Mm -hmm. in the 30s. Mm -hmm. So they, you know, by law they shouldn't wear the veil. On the other hand, they were scorned if they didn't wear the veil. And it's gone back and forth, back and forth. Yes. What's it done to Iranian womenhood, if I can ask such a general sweeping question? It's made them really tough. <laughs> I think of my grandmother, who was illiterate. My grandmother had a fourth grade education, but she was able to run a business in Tehran. She survived the Iran-Iraq war. She was resilient, resilient beyond what I could even muster, I would say, with all of my education. My mother, too, a tough woman. Women have had to be strong in Iran in order to survive these vicissitudes. I would say the women in your book are tougher than the men, by and large. <laughs> Did you think, um, as you wrote this, about what it would have been like if you had been a woman in Iran during your grandmother or mother's time? I don't think of myself as tough in the way that they were. But, of course, I've had, in many ways, a much easier life. Of course, I went to school. I had a lot of restrictions growing up as an Iranian girl in America. But my life was hardly as circumscribed as theirs were. But it's, as you say, I think it's the very circumstances of their lives that made them so tough, so hardy. And resilient. Did you try to imagine what it, what it would have been like if you had been in there? If I had been in their circumstances, I really don't think myself so brave. I'm not so brave as my grandmother and mother. Life has been far easier for me, and I've not needed to be half as resourceful as they were. You didn't have it that easy, though. In a sense, I had it easy in that. Of course, I went to school. I was able to have an excellent education. But I was caught, like many Iranian girls of that time, I, in the book I say the true measure of Iranians' exile would be shown through the loss of their daughters. And I think of immigrant daughters, how we are often the last stand, or how our parents raise us is often the last foothold they have 
over um, their past and who they are in this country. So like a lot of Iranian girls, I grew up with restrictions that made me strange to my American friends. I wasn't allowed, certainly when I was a teenager, to date. Um, it was unthinkable that I should date. And uh, and so I lived a kind of double life, I'd say. I <clears throat> was an American girl at home. I was an Iranian girl at school. I tried the very best I could whenever I could to pass as normal, which I understood to mean American. Mm -hmm. And you came, was it 1979? It was 1978 when we left. During mm -hmm. the revolution, uh, like a lot of people in Iran, your parents fled, um, in their case, to the United States. You settled in the Bay Area. You came at a time, as a child, three years old, mm -hmm. when Iran was public enemy number one in the United States. The hostage crisis cast yeah. a very long shadow over Iranian children of my generation. Mm -hmm. Many of us grew up with a sense of shame. We had a sense of being outsiders. We understood so little about the history that brought our families to America. Our parents often, like my mother, spoke of Persia, of this vanquished, glorious place and spoke much less about Iran. And so I think many of the Iranians who came at the time I did as young children grew up very confused and very ashamed of their background. Did you refer to yourself as Persian instead of Iranian? When I was young, my mother actually counseled me to call myself Persian. She would say, they won't know then where you're really from. <laughs> now, Iran at that time was Iran. Um, it was, it was, it would later be known as the axis of evil, as part of the axis of evil. But for many Americans, the association would be to the hostage crisis. And there was a demonization of Iran that I knew well as a child. Oh, yeah. You you had a classmate. Uh, you call her Ziba. You probably changed her name, too. I did. <laughs> when you were in elementary school, and you did your best to disassociate yourself from her because she was really more Iranian than you. She had come more recently. Mm -hmm. She had a very thick accent. My teacher had thrust our, t our desks next to each other, and I was horrified to be associated with her. By then, of course, I spoke English without an accent, and I was very um, unnerved to be classed as um, this Iranian girl and to be forced into a friendship with a girl that I thought quite bizarre and Iranian. So um, how did you throw her under the bus? <laughs> I, <laughs> um, you know, I just found an American friend and she was such a, now that I think about it, it was such a cruel act, but children are notoriously cruel. It's not a part of my life that I'm particularly proud of. I'm not proud of it at all, but it does to me demonstrate the ways that we internalize the hatred toward Iran in those years. You write that shame gave you English. <laughs> I always had such a keen sense of embarrassment when my mother spoke English. I don't know why. I was always very attuned to how people responded to her. She would get stared down. I knew her accent was exotic to Americans. And I, from a very early age, sought 
to speak English without an accent. And I think now, too, when I say shame gave me English, shame made me a very bookish girl. I grew up reading lots and lots and lots, and I would find escape through books in particular. So shame gave me the English language, but it also gave me stories. Mm. Good and bad then, huh? Both together. <laughs> Speaking of stories, you know, I referred to your mom, your mom's story earlier as, as like almost something out of Dickens. But mm. if it had been Dickens, I kind of think that, you know, like Dickens' heroes, things would have ended up really kind of happy and maybe even some wealth would have come into her life after mm. all of her entrepreneurial uh, <laughs> energy and all of her refusal to, uh, to give up, uh, you know, becoming a midwife. Becoming almost what I would call a proto-feminist. I, I doubt that she thought of herself that way, or did she? She didn't associate with the feminist movement, mm -hmm. but many of her sensibilities are, I recognize, as feminist. But by the time we came to America, she was already 40 years old. There was no time to get an American diploma. My parents did what many immigrants do, is to make themselves over yet again. And they ran a hotel, motel actually, a small motel off the freeway in Northern California. And my mother ran that motel single-handedly. She became the maid of that motel. She was its manager. She was extraordinarily tough, but it was also very painful for her to have given up her practice in Iran. And I think that's why she talked to me about this place called Persia because she had attained respect. She had become a professional woman in Iran. And to come at the age of 40 to America and be demoted so dramatically, so drastically, was very painful for her. Your father, also an engineer, um, both of them have to spend, you know, night and day taking care of what I think you described as a rundown motel. It was a rundown little motel off the side of the freeway. It was not um, a glamorous or pretty place. Yeah, it was, it was a tough life. And then your dad also had a drinking problem, serious one. Yes, and I wasn't allowed to talk about it to anyone, and my mother never spoke of it. I was mentioning earlier on when we began talking how there are not, we don't have words in Persian for some things. There's no word for alcoholism. Even if there had been, I wouldn't have been allowed to speak it there was absolute silence around my father's drinking when I was growing up. So your your mother didn't achieve the storybook kind of um, <laughs> ascendancy that you, know, you, you would expect if this were a made-up story. Instead, it was a hard life in America, really hard. And still hard. And my still mother hard. is now, she's in her early 70s now. America is quite a tough place to grow old and... Um, and it's, I can say, still a struggle for her. I feel like she, like many Iranians, is still waiting to return. Mm. Now, we, we mentioned earlier that, that your mother had a daughter by her first marriage. And again, you changed her name, but you gave her the name Sara? Sara, yes. Sara. Sara, she had to leave behind. I mean, first of all, Sara was the property of her first husband, the abuser. Um, but Sara was another tough woman. Mm -hmm. refused to accept that, pursued your mother for years, actually snuck out of the house and when she was quite young and found her way to your mother's uh, family home. That's right. Sarah was brought up to think my mother had left her 
by her own choice. Mm-hmm. She was also raised to think my mother was, the word in Persian is kharab, which means, literally means broken, but it also has the connotation of a loose or a fallen woman. But of course, she, as she as a child, was desperate to see her mother. She never gave up longing for her mother, even though she was brought up to think my mother was a bad woman. So she would at one point seek my mother out. She'd run away from home, actually, to find my mother. And there would be attempts over the next years to reunite. Sometimes Sara sought my mother out. Sometimes my mother sought Sara out. But it's like the phrase in Persian, like a broken vessel. You can try to put it together again, but it will always be broken. Mm. And I think of their relationship as one that would be forever broken. What did you feel like writing about this half-sister of yours, who, by the way, you didn't really know about when your mother uh, started sending you these cassette tapes after your father died? In what year? My father died in the year 2000. So your mother starts revealing this whole backstory, including her first marriage, which you knew nothing about. She mm-hmm. never told anybody in the U.S., right? That's right. And Sarah, your half-sister, you didn't even know you had. I think if we had stayed in Iran, I would have known her. Mm-hmm. I think our lives would have found um, some kind of reconciliation. But once we came to America, the relationship became even more attenuated and frayed. A lot of resentment on my sister's part toward my mother, and a lot of guilt and pain on my mother's side toward her first daughter. I had known Sara as a young child when I was a young child myself in Iran. She used to come and visit the hair salon, but these are very dim memories to me. So I only really encountered her on these cassette tapes my mother made for me. Oh, so you didn't know you had this half-sister? I did not know. My mother used to say to me when I was growing up, if you're not a good daughter, if you're not my good daughter, I'll go back to Iran to my good daughter. I'm often asked, who's the good daughter? Well, when I was little, I thought she was real, and I thought that she could steal my mother away from me. And later, when I became a teenager, I dismissed her as a fiction. I thought, this is just one of my mother's strange Iranian ways of trying to keep me in line. But I would have very faint memories of her and still have the most attenuated memories of that time in Iran Mm. when she used to come visit me. Mm. Well, Sara was not a good daughter in Mm. the sense that your mother seemed to represent her. I mean, first of all, they were estranged. Sara was angry at her for having abandoned her. Mm -hmm. At least that's what she thought had Mm -hmm. happened. There was never this perfect relationship, and yet your mom started using this this fiction or this myth of a good daughter back in Iran to, to sort of uh, get you in line, I guess. What, what's going on there? I think now of that good daughter is the sum of all of the loss and the longing my mom felt for her first daughter and all the hope and the fear that she had for me. The good daughter is all of us and she's none of us. She's a fiction. She's real. She's a riddle. Mm. And your mother, who had broken all the rules herself, who was a divorcee, Mm -hmm. later, you know, frowned on you dating Mm -hmm. a divorcee, a divorced uh, Iranian doctor who you went out with for a while. Now I think about that in terms of how she had endured so much censure and ostracism. I think from my mother, she had a terrible fear that I would 
become the subject of gossip, and Iranians are huge gossip mongers. So she had a really keen sense of my reputation, of maintaining my reputation. But my mother's truly a riddle, too, just as my sister's a riddle. She's both very ahead of her time in some ways, unlike the women of her generation. But many of her sensibilities would only become more Iranian upon our immigration to the U.S. She would become herself more Iranian, not less so as the years went on. And nowhere did I feel, feel this more strongly than in how she raised me, and especially in her attitudes toward my dating and my going out into the world as a as a young woman. Mm. We've talked a bit about how complicated the situation was for women in Iran, and still is, I guess, but all these different messages, tradition, modernity, you know, absolutely bombarding them. And uh, there's also this complex relationship, it seems to me, that Iran had and, and may still have with Europe. Mm -hmm. I mean, Iran was part of this old world, this traditional world, it seems to have been lost in a previous century in some ways. You're describing the 40s and 50s, and it sounds like it might be 100, 200, 300 years ago. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, Iran had an eye toward Europe and European fashions, European mm -hmm. customs and things like that You know, were sort of um, trickling in. There was a glamour associated with Europe. And to this day, you know, um, you must know this, that rhinoplasty nose jobs are like mm -hmm. huge in iran mm -hmm. women having their noses altered to not look iranian you know to look more western right of course so those aesthetics would of course it, i think mostly in the 50s it was that iranians would begin to think of beauty in terms of what western countries thought of as beautiful for instance that small nose and the fair skin and you know it's really internalized racism on some levels um on, on quite a profound level, in fact, I think of it as internalized racism. It's also the forces of commercialization. It's the force of cinema coming into Iran, all those films of the 50s and 60s. I grew up watching the Charlie's Angels when I was little mm. in Tehran. So Iranians were very familiar with what the West looked like um, and very quickly, those who could afford to anyway, sought to remake themselves in that model. I should say men too, uh, not just women getting nose jobs, from yeah. what I understand. Yeah. Um, you... I can tell you something else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm interested. Well, and also, because I'm half Iranian, Iranians have always said to me, oh, you're very pretty. You don't look like an Iranian. Mm -hmm. And they do fetishize half Iranians. And within my family, I was always prized for not looking Iranian, let's say. Of course, I do look Iranian, but um, often Iranians don't uh, immediately recognize me in Iranian, and they'll say something like, oh, you look pretty, you don't look Iranian. So it runs really deep, and it's, of course, very disturbing to hear such comments, um, but there are comments that I've heard all my life. What's the, the, uh, the phrase? Um, there, there are a couple of phrases using the word farang, that's right. My mother used to call herself, and she said, I was as beautiful as an Arusfarangi, which means I was as beautiful as a foreign bride, by which she would mean I was more beautiful than an Iranian one. And she used to call me when I was little. She used to say, you're my Arusak Farangi. You're my little foreign doll. You're as pretty as a foreign doll. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 
Farang, does it directly come from the word foreign, the, the English word? The origin is actually for the word for France. Oh. Um, so, so its first meaning would have been France, but it's used more broadly to denote Europe or mm-hmm. the West. Mm-hmm. Your mother in her teens, after she left that, that terrible first marriage, was a big uh, reader, as we said, of uh, European <laughs> novels. Uh, you um, initially became, in your education, you became an attorney. That's right. There were, there were two tracks when I was growing up. You either went to medical school or you went to law school. You mean you, meaning? As I, I'm talking more broadly about the community, but uh, young women uh, either married a doctor or they became one. And as a second choice, if you weren't particularly gifted in the sciences, you became a lawyer. And mm-hmm. there were very few... There were no alternatives, really. You might study, as I did, I studied English at college. I was an English major. But to, for example, get a PhD in English was thought of as pretty risky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I mean, here, here you are talking about how restricted the options were for mm-hmm. a young Iranian-American to yeah. being a lawyer or a doctor. Yeah. Those are pretty high. I realize that's restrictive, but it's a totally different world from your your grandmother's world where yeah. the options were to be a bride and to live at home and that's that. Well, Iranians have been that they have been a model minority. Mm. Iranians um of my generation having great numbers gone to medical school mm-hmm. or law school. What's so interesting to me are the ways in which young women were negotiating such in many instances conflicting values. Go to law school, get your degree, but stay home, live at home while you go to law school, uh, appear to be a uh, modern westernized girl, but don't tell anyone you have a boyfriend. So many of us were desperately trying to make sense of these conflicting values and so confused, I think, the women of my generation, the Iranian women of my generation. But it's made us tough in our own way, mm. it seems to me. Well, I started out saying your mother and her relationship to, to literature, <laughs> you, after getting your law degree, after actually practicing, right? You That's passed right. the bar, you practiced, you went back to school, got a PhD in literature. I did. Did you inherit your mother's love <laughs> of, of literature? I inherited the love of stories from my grandmother and then from my mother. They're both marvelous storytellers. They never wrote themselves. Um, My grandmother, of course, was illiterate, so she couldn't have written. And I think I have from them the love of stories, though in my case it would take the form of getting a PhD in literature. What stories most compelled you? When I was a student, graduate student in English? Oh, I loved those. I started out graduate school as a Victorianist. I loved those thick Mm -hmm. novels of the 19th century. But I actually became especially in the wake of 9-11, I became very interested in accounts of Middle Eastern immigrant lives. So I changed. I was initially a Victorianist and then changed to writing a dissertation on Iranian immigrant writing, actually. And that had much to do with, I think, trying to make sense of my identity through literature in the wake of 9-11. Want to recommend some novelists in that category? Um, Iranian novelists? Yeah. Well, there's a wonderful collection called Let Me Tell You Where I've Been by Persis Kareem. And it's, I think, a wonderful resource for anyone who wants to read writing by Iranian immigrant writers. It has poetry, fiction, nonfiction. It's an anthology. So I think of that as a really marvelous way to begin. Spell the the last name of the editor. Kareem. K-A-R-I-M. Thank you. 
Um, you've never been back to Iran? I've not, no. In fact, I use the word never. You use the word never in your book. You say <laughs> of both your mother and you mm-hmm. that we never went back. Why did she use that word never? I mean, there's still time. Well, for 30 years, Iranians in America have been thinking they could return. And so there's part of Iranians that will never give up the possibility of return. And yet, as you surely know, in the last two years, return has become increasingly complicated. Fewer people return each year. Friends of mine who've been going have stopped going. So um, this makes me a bit concerned, and I'm not sure under what circumstances I'll be able to return. If the Green Revolution, as some (laughs) called it, uh, revived and and actually succeeded, would you go back? I always know I'll return to Iran. Oh. I do. Mm. The only question to me is when. Mm. And I felt, particularly in writing this book, as close to Iran as I have been in my life, and it's only made me want to go more. Writing a book can reveal to you not just what you know, but what you don't know. For instance, I don't know much of my sister's story, and I think I can only recover it by going to Iran and by meeting her. Hmm. When you found, um, again, I think it was after your father's death, when you found a photograph that really got you interested in your mother's untold story. Mm -hmm. This is of her and her first husband when she was a mere, what, 13 years old? Uh, I think it was a wedding photo. Is that right? That's right. Um, She took it away from you and said, this doesn't have anything to do with you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Obviously, it had a lot to do with you. So do you think of yourself differently after having gone through this, the writing of your mother's story? Absolutely. It's been a reconciliation, not just with my mother, but with Iran. Um, I had become very disassociated from the Iranian parts of my life. I had hidden those myself. So writing the book has brought me a real appreciation of the beauties of Iranian culture. As much as I didn't want to flinch, I wanted to look hard at subjects like domestic abuse, at alcoholism. I wanted to look unflinchingly at those. I also wanted to render the beauty of the culture. And it's been marvelous for me to write this book and to convey to myself as much as to others how very rich Iran's culture is. How does your mother feel about it? She vacillates between um, crying out, stop the presses, and (laughs) planning her outfit for Oprah. So one day it's stop the presses, the next day it's when is Oprah going to get us on the show. Um, Have you heard from Oprah yet? Not yet. (laughs) Have you heard from Hollywood yet? Um, I just want to reach readers now. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to reach readers. Um, But many of her friends, most of her friends, will only know this story by reading it. And so she's been extremely brave in letting me take the story out into the world and share it with other people. So I feel very grateful. Well, thank you, Jasmine. Thank you. Jasmine Darznick is the author of The Good Daughter, a memoir of my mother's hidden life. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, your host. I'll be back next week. You can visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.